Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is an incredible icon just awarded uh, for exceptional contributions to reggae by the Jamaican Industry Recording Association. I'm talking about the co-founder of Third World, going 47 years strong, the incredible Stephen Cat Core. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Matt. How are you doing, man? Oh, we're doing just great. Just great. Happy that there's light at the end of the tunnel. Yes, yes, yes. And um, and the more I look at, I must say this year seems to be a lot more positive than last year. You know, just generally, just generally speaking. So, Kat, I'd love to go back and start by talking about an incredible influence on your love and passion for music, and that's your mother, Rita Angela Innescor. And the legend has it that it was her that exposed you to music. And I'd love just to start by your remembrances of your mom and the tremendous influence she had on your love of music. Well, I tell you what, I'll do even better than that. I'll go before I can remember. Because you see, the thing is that my mom is an island scholar. Now, in those days, they only gave one scholarship to a portion of islands like Trinidad, Grenada, Barbados, um, St. Vincent, St. Lucia, that whole chain of islands there. There was one scholarship. The Island Scholarship. Island, you were an Island Scholar, or in Jamaica, you were a Jamaica Scholar, which is just interesting that I mention that because my dad's a Jamaican Scholar and my mom's an Island Scholar, and that's how they met. They met at McGill University. And um, interestingly, also, is that the core family is one of very few that have three Jamaica Scholars. My dad, my uncle and my nephew are all Jamaica scholars. So, you know, it's, it goes back to there with mom. And, um, and her thing was that she was really into the arts and stuff. Obviously, she was good enough to get through, you know, all the other exams that she had to do, but music was her thing. And uh, music and communications was, was her thing. And... Um, she studied for some time at the BBC and she went to the Royal College of Music in England. And um, I don't know how much, you know, she, in terms of being a performer, she really had contemplated, but she certainly, she sat on the doorstep of Lloyd Webber because she wanted to study with him. And she sat there and waited till he came every day, every day. And then he said, look, I can't take this anymore. Brought her in. And um, therein lies a great story because he gave her away at her wedding. And that's Andrew Lloyd Webber's dad. So, you know, when you ask me about my mom and I start to open up my mouth, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of ridiculous, but... I mean, I'm just telling the truth. And um, so therein would have been how mom would have been so involved with music and stuff. And then, you know, she said that she saw talent in me and she said, right now, you know, she wanted to deal with that. So that started the whole thing with listening to, the, to Pablo Casals and um, 
and Damira Hess and you know Rostropovich and that just started the whole thing with me and the music and it just got more and more until I got to an age where I really started to love pop music, you know, started to really check for the scatterlights and um, started to really hear influences from the UK now, from the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, and um, I don't think I was privy that much to hear a lot of R&B. Oh, in my house, we got the we got the forty-five records that my bigger brothers went and bought, which was like, "Come on, without." Come on, within you not see nothing that nobody quit, you know that, that that kind of thing. So sure, yeah. But the scatterlights were playing across the road, across the gully. The scatterlights were playing, so I got to get influenced by that as well. So you know, I really I moved away from from the whole classical thing, not with any band feeling or you know any kind of acrimony, but I um I knew what I wanted to do. And then of course from there on out it was like meeting Bob Marley and the Whalers and playing in the inner circle as a very young, very, very youngster. I played with Inner Circle. And um having a chance with Inner Circle to back up Toots and the Matels, Alton Ellis. and so on. So it sort of launched me really into, you know, like a, a whole thing. So when the third world thing came around, it was just a matter that I had broken away from Inner Circle and wanted to do my own thing. And, you know, I had some really close friends at the time, you know, Colin Leslie, Carl Barovia, these guys. And, um, Ibu had been in Inner Circle with me, but he had stayed in Inner Circle after he, I even made my move. He had stayed for, for a minute. But then he came over and he said, we couldn't, you know, we couldn't do this without him. So, and he was right. We really couldn't have done it without him. So you mentioned the Scatolites. Yes. And uh, I, one of the things that I love to talk about, Kat, are certain names that if people like you and I don't talk about them, they could be lost in history. Yeah, that's very true. And, and ska music is such a seminal part of so much other music. Yeah, man, of music history, of music history. Talk about the Scatterlights, talk about other acts who you must have known and seen at that age, Derek Morgan and Prince Buster, and just how influential they were, I still see the Scatolites. Whoever has the name now just played last year at the Brooklyn Bowl before 
uh, the coronavirus stopped us all from seeing live music. And it's all different players, but the music is timeless. When they play Freedom Sounds, it's ti- it's timeless. Lights are special and the history of them is special too. And history goes back a little bit before I actually would have been able to call myself someone who would have been into the history of the Scatellite. Because the history with them goes back to, I would say, 1955, and I'm born in 56. So, I mean, like in 58, 59 would have been a great time for them. But also going into the 60s, because remember that they did the, the simmer down with Bob Marley. They were, all, they were also a backing studio band for many great songs. You know, besides the Treasure Isle crew, you had the Treasure Isle crew and the Scatellites crew. And they basically ran the roost of all the songs that were recorded. It's just that as time went on, you find that um, the beat slowed down into Rocksteady. And more musicians like Leroy Sibbles, for instance, and men like, um, you know, but Tommy McCook and Roland and them, they span other generation. They come from raw skia and go right through Rocksteady, right up into reggae, you have to say, because Tommy McCook and David Madden and Glenda Costa were players for Bob Marley. On those early albums like so, Jasse and those tunes. Those Scatellites guys are still there. They are, they are definitely, the, I think, the most powerful influence as a band, as a band. The Scatellites are the most powerful influence, I think, in Jamaican music. And then you have Third World, then you have Inner Circle. And maybe not in that order. Maybe not in that order. But... I mean, the Scatellites definitely, I think, they influenced all of us. Jackie Metu, superb person in terms of what he gave to Jamaican music. Lloyd Nibs, the drummer, great, gave a great contribution to what we know now as Jamaican music. And the bass player also, Brivet. Um, yeah, there's not much you can say about them that's not glowing. The Scatellites are glowing. That, and they had, a, they had an era too with the great Don Drummond. And that's maybe something I touched on with you, sir, because yeah. he was one of the finest ever. And his, his tone was exceptional. His, his trombone tone was top draw. And there are some people who, you know, there's a school of thought that says that, boy, his trombone playing, he wasn't as efficient and, and, and as quick as some of these other jazz guys, which may be cool. But the argument kind of loses some coolness because 
Dan used to play some intervals on his horn. In those scassons, he plays some intervals that are very hard. You have to be very skillful to do that. So hats off to them, man. Big up. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Don Drummond and so many other great names, Kat, while you're talking. I'm thinking of Desmond Decker, another incredible musician. Fantastic. Absolutely. I mean, these are guys way ahead of the time, man. The pointed toe shoes, you know, the little gun mouth pants. You know, they, they, when they went to England, they were a sensation. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Amazing. So before we leave your early life, let's also talk about your dad, the Honorable David Hilton Corps, who was Deputy Prime Minister of Jamaica. You mentioned also a Jamaica scholar, but your dad was incredibly accomplished. And, you know, I, I've been to Jamaica, I've been to Kingston, I've been to Trenchtown. You did not have a Trenchtown background. You were a very lucky little boy that your mom and dad were incredibly accomplished. Yeah, but I don't think that accomplished necessarily meant rich. And people need to make that kind of distinction so that they don't get things mixed up. Because my family, my growing up may have been privileged in a way in terms of brain power. And yes, we had food on the table to eat. But there were other families in Jamaica who made all, but whatever kind of financial thing we had looked paltry. So one has to understand that as well, Brentry. You know, you can't just look on it from one side of the kind. And um, yes, I fully appreciate what I was accorded by the Father Almighty, who, you know, who has some kind of reason here in all of this. Um, you know, I am very grateful for it, and I'm and I'm I hope I'm hoping that I was able to use it in a reasonable way, and um, you know, I, I think that it would be equal for me to say that Bob Marley, even though he came from a very humble beginning, but the principles of his mother. And the principles of the people around him that he grew up in that whole environment, I think that that's what made him write those wonderful songs. And um, there was a militant side to him, of course, burning and a looting tonight and stuff. I know where he's coming from. Look at what just happened in Haiti. You know, yeah. the world is funny, you know. And um, but all and in all, when it com comes on to my uncle Bob. His music has been the most inspiring I ever knew. And um, I know plenty of music from, from Jacqueline Dupre and Pablo Casals come right up to Rostropovich and Arthur Rubinstein. And you know what I mean? Even Liberace, I can tell you how good he is. And I can tell you Bob Marley is right up there with all of them. He's out of the top drop. And not only, not only that, but he has done so much for the world, my friend. You know, just in terms of his message, his one love, you know, all that stuff. Three Little Birds. Whoever they ever thought that would be an anthem for, you know. But anyway, don't worry. Everything's going to be all right. You know? Yeah. How much yeah. simple and honest and loving a message can you get than that? 
You're you're right. All right. I want to talk more about Bob uh, and I couldn't agree more with you, but let, let's stay with you cat for a little bit longer. So at 13, you're a very young guy. You join a band, you join inner circle and the inner circle third world ties. The first seeds are planted. Um, what do you remember from being a 13 year old being on stage and you're starting to explode as a musician at a very young age? Yeah, well, I was also exploding as a human being. I put on a lot of weight. So I, <laughs> I was known as Fat Cat in those days. So. But, <laughs> you know, it, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. Um, you know, not everyone who was around me going to school were living the same experience that I was living. And um, that was really nice. But at the same time, it came with some responsibility. You know what I mean? Um, I still had my school exams to do at, when I got to 16. I still, still had my high school exams to do. Um, and, you know, I wasn't necessarily... I don't want to say, I mean, I'm, I'm a sharp knife in the draw, but when it came out to stuff like chemistry and physics and stuff, I wasn't really that good. So, you know, um, I had to think about that as well. So playing playing was great. I was, you know, I was able to handle all the solos and, you know, we were doing covers at the time. So, you know, you had to listen to the record and figure the guitar part out. I was really good at that. So I mean, you know, I was going along nice. I was going, <laughs> I was going and, good. <laughs> and I remember from when we first met in Atlanta back in the eighties. I remember you talked about the Alley Cats. Yeah. Um, um a garage band, a, a band, a neighborhood band, bro. That's the best way I can put it. But in, those days in Jamaica, you're really brave if you do something like that, you know, because. People in the neighborhood, number one, your friends going to laugh at you and say, what are you doing with guitar? And thing? You have to prove that to them first, that you can actually do that. And then on top of that, now you have to, you know, pull something off, like some, some neighbor decides that they really will actually allow you to come and play in the house or something, you know. Then the girls in the neighborhood start to notice you. Hey, Mrs. Moran said they could come and play at her house, you know. And then you kick the ball out from there and you try your best and see what can happen and happen. But you know, I had I it, it's it's a, it's it's not a gold spoon, it's like a bronze spoon I got, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I gotcha. Okay, and then all of a sudden, third world is born. You, Ebo, talk about the formation of the band. You're still amazing. I just watched before we got on um, what you just did with uh, Damian Marley. Uh, you know, the new album, Grammy nominated, you're still completely at the top of your game. But let's go back to the beginning and the formation of the true reggae ambassadors of the world, third world. Well, uh, but, um, the, the formation of the group is a fairly simple kind of, Thing, if you really look at what, you know, what the, the, the parameters were, I mean, look, 
I had broken away from Inner Circle because I wanted to try something different to being a, a cover, a band that was playing covers. And um, it, it would be unfair for me to say that Inner Circle had not been thinking the same direction because they had, because we had done, done songs like um, <clears throat> I See You, which was um, an original that was given to the group, and we recorded it at Federal Records. Um, Funky Brown was the lead singer on that track. And we had done other songs, but for some reason I just felt why I kind of was, I think I was influenced a lot by rock music at the time because I was going to Priory and I was interacting with a lot of Americans who's, they came to work in Jamaica in the Backside Company and the this and that, and their kids went to Priory. And they would bring a lot of Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix and stuff and Carlos. That's when I first heard Carlos. And, you know, it kind of influenced me, I believe. And um, I started to get into rap music and I figured that, boy, I could have done something more in that direction rather than being in a circle. And that was what prompted me to want to start my own thing. You know, but I, it's not as if I was... I was strange because there were other people who were of the same mindset as myself. And um, they, Colin Leslie and Carl Barovia particularly at first, were visionarily seeing that. And I was saying, well, yeah, yeah, how are we going to get this done? Because, you know, things were so hard at the time. Even buying musical equipment was hard and stuff. Sure. I had a nice guitar that I had got from Inner Circle, in, um, got from playing with Inner Circle, but Inner Circle owned all the equipment that we played on, all the amplifiers, the drum sets, everything was all Inner Circle's, you know, property, and of course, for good reason. And uh, I just tried to figure where, how we would figure that out. And as days went by, um, Ibu Cooper came and he, threw his hat in the ring. Um, and uh, well, Prilly Hamilton had been with us from the very start. It had been Prilly, myself, Colin, and Carl. Myself and Prilly were the ones who really went and actually went to the bank and got the loan. It was Prilly and myself who did that. And um, we, we, had a, we had a good concept in terms of like, um, what we wanted to do, we figured that there were many bands in Jamaica at the time, and we figured that if we even did Jamaica road work, go and play in a nightclub, go and play for a Kiwanis ball, go and play here, whatever, what, we figured we could get enough money to pay back the loan that we would take for the instruments and so on. We were, we were very positive about that. And at the time, the government was, you know, was my dad's and Michael Manley's first government, one of Jamaica's most radical, socially inclined governments, and enough respect to them, enough respect to them. And, and they were, the workers back in Jamaica was, was said, yeah, you guys are a band. You want to do music, this, that, that, you know, you're not going to go on the street and rob or kill anybody. You want to do something constructive and you might inspire people. So we'll give you a loan. It was a very small loan. I mean, but in those days, a small loan could do a lot because we were still able to get, you know, amplifiers from Washington, um, a bass guitar, another guitar, 
a keyboard, you know, were able to really launch the man that way. And um, we took it from there, my brother. We took it from there and we set up. Uh, we bought a small PA system that we could sing through. And we took it from there. And we, we, we just kept getting better and better because we were just so dedicated and rehearsing every single day so hard and music was everything. And if we had a chance to go and see Bob Marley or we had a chance to go and see Marvin Gaye or something like that, we took the chance. We didn't, we were, music was everything. And, and, and very early on, Kat, you end up going from hotels and nightclubs, but you end up playing at the National Stadium with the Whalers and, as I recall, the Jackson 5? Yes, that's the first one. There were, there were two big ones. There was the, the Whalers and the Jackson 5, and shortly thereafter, after we went to England and did a little thing and came back, we were with Stevie Wonder and the Whalers at the same venue, National Stadium. So we had two, we had two really good hits at the National Stadium where we did really well. We we trained really hard. I use the word trained advisedly because, you know, when you're going into the stadium, you need to run fast. And we needed to play well. We trained hard. And um, and for the Bob Marley one, <clears throat> the Bob Marley Stevie Wonder one was some years after. But we had already been in England. We had already been training and been doing well. And we came back for that one. But... Yeah, it's two big moments in the band's life, for real. So let's go back and talk some more about Bob Marley and the Whalers, who I guess you've listened to as young as you can remember, and then ended up playing with starting in about 1973, 74, somewhere around there. Uh, talk about your, you know, real, when you just think privately to yourself, Kat, and you think about Bob, I know he and Carlos Santana, both huge influences on you philosophically and musically, but let's dig a little bit deeper on Bob Marley and the Whalers. Well, Bob Marley and the Whalers, I mean, it doesn't really need me to really, I mean, I don't really need to say a lot. I mean, Bob Marley and the Whalers, there's been so much stuff written about them. You have so much information about them and the, and, you know, I mean, the most I can tell you is what I told you before, that it was a, a great pleasure for me to be in Inner Circle and um, and have the privilege and the opportunity to really be a backing band for Bob Marley and the Whalers. Now, the Bob Marley and the Whalers was only three people, but they were so sticky about what they wanted and how the band should sound and this and that, and really, 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 I mean, it was quite a task to, 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 to play, you know, to be back in Bumman and the Wheelers at that time. It was a task. So when you say three, you're talking about Bob, Peter Tosh, and Bunny Whaler? That's what I'm talking about, yeah. Talk about Peter and Bunny. Same way. Um, all three of them very expressive. All three of them very... Um, 
magical in what they brought to the table as musicians. Um, very, very bright, very articulate about everything. Um, very good singers too. Um, all three of them were very good singers and um, very special, very special. Um, a special experience and uh, having lived to a level now where I can see what all of that really means, it's kind of really, it's almost frightening sometimes. So it's, it's easy for me to remember a lot. It's hard to forget a lot also, let me put it that way. So, you know, I mean, I would have loved to have seen the three brethren stayed together for a little while longer, at least. I'd have loved to have seen that um, because I think that they would have made some more great music and if they were even able to reconnect, you know, you have some groups in America, like um, like um, like America, the group America, they came back together because they harmonized so great. They came back and did some work together, you know, um, Hotel California boys. They came back together again too because they did such great, wonderful work, and they were they were good together. You know what I mean? they were good together um like you know a lot of those um those r&b groups they were absolutely fantastic in their day like stylistics and the and oj's and stuff and sometimes nowhere around the world is only one guy's there but they have two more guys coming and filling you know and um and they and and the sound is there. They they get the same sound. They do it. It's fascinating for me how they do that. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No. A lot, and a lot of these groups, we saw the OJ's uh, with Harold Melvin's Blue Notes. Really. A, a couple of years ago at the King's Theater in Brooklyn, the OJ show, and they had the big band with the big horns, and it's still Eddie Levert and two of the three originals, and the third guy. The new guy's been in the band for 20 years. Yeah. You know, and you're right. They still have the sound. What kind of new guy is that? Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> let, let's go back and talk more about uh, Third World. You get signed by Island Records. You start recording and you get an incredible singer who I'd love to talk about because I saw you perform live so many times. And when people say, who is your favorite singer? I always had two answers. My favorite female singer was Darlene Love. I'm sure you know Darlene Love. Yeah. And my favorite male singer was always Bunny Ruggs. I thought he was such a great, great singer. Yeah. Well, you're correct. He's a great singer. There's no question about that.
question about that. I mean, I Bunny Rugs, I knew Bunny Rugs from really, Bunny Rugs was in Inner Circle with me when I was 13 and I joined Inner Circle. Bunny was a singer. So we go back a long, long way and we were always close and then he left and went to New York. You know, and did all kind of things in New York. He drove Gypsy Taxi, he drove Yellow Cab, he did, he went, he did painting, go and paint people's ceilings and all this kind of stuff he did. But he always had his little side thing. Every Friday night, he'd go sing somewhere for a hundred bucks or he'd go sing somewhere for 80 bucks or something, you know? So he was always doing that, you know what I mean? And um, the opportunity just came up really where Prilly and ourselves kind of got into a little bit of difference of opinion in terms of where the band should go. And um, that caused the whole thing by Prilly left, you know, because Prilly's a great boy, and Prilly's my boy, I love him. To this day, me and Prilly born on the same day, and we're tight, very tight. And, um, you know, things just changed, and Rugs came into the picture, but nobody better, I think, could come into the picture because he's such a great singer, you know, and um, he's really one of these people that he had such a tremendous personality. And um, and and his, his his sense of humor and his wit was absolutely amazing. Got a bit dry and a, a little of truth in the later part of his life, but that's understandable, you know. Of course. And with Rugs as your singer, you record your second album back 1977, and all of a sudden, 96 degrees in the shade still one of the all-time great songs in any genre of music comes out and you guys start to really really get a big audience all around the world it was 96 Reason a lot of people don't remember was that when we did explanations in Jamaica, a theatrical production of the music of that 96 Degrees album, we began to get some real attention in our own in our own country. And the thing about it is that when you get attention in your own country, it spreads. 
and people began to hear about it all over the world because you know the the articles come out in the gleaner and this and that all of a sudden I didn't know what was happening and my life was changing and um Blackwell wanted to re to record our next album to come and we were taken to Nassau to record the next album and that's where I think everything became really far more you know I mean I think 96 degrees as you say but the green album, the first album that we did, is what really launched us. That's what launched us. Satama Sagana, Brand New Beggar, Slavery Days, that's what really launched us off. And that's the only album in Blackwell's top 50. Hmm. Only one of Blackwell's top 50 all-time albums is the green album. 96 didn't make it. Journey to Addis didn't make it. Green album is the only one, and I agree with him. It's it's a fabulous, fabulous, fabulous album, and a great way for the band to launch. A great opening album for a band to launch. You know, it's really cool. You mentioned him, but talk a little about uh, Chris Blackwell and Island Records, and how influential and important he is in the whole story, not only of Third World but so many other acts, starting with the Whalers. Well, he's he's a he's a he's a very strong conduit, Matthew. You know what I mean? Um, he has to be kind of like there's some kind of very very special gift that Blackwell received in terms of his the positive way in which he he really um, had faith in certain acts and how he was able to hear a song and say, yes, he really liked that song or what he did. I don't know, he had a gift. He really has a gift. And um, it, it's just funny that, as I say, with age, things change because I don't think that that gift exists anymore. I think music has changed so much right now that um, I don't even think I, would even be able to tell you even close to what you know I would think people like right now because but people do like a good song they do like a good song and um you know I, I, that's why I really love the project that we did with Damien because I was able to interact with him so Kat I, I want to ask you about one show in particular that I think you'll remember and that was in 81. It was, I think it was the second or third time you played with Stevie Wonder at Sunsplash shortly after Bob had passed. Yeah, man. That must, that must have been a very emotional reggae Sunsplash. Well, it was, but it was a very exciting one as well because by that time now you have to understand that we don't get over the Bob thing already. You know? And um, we were coming back to Jamaica and we were, you know, we had we had been on a we had been on a whirlwind thing because we had been we had a, a mild hit in England called Dancing on the Floor, and we had been over there. We've been doing very well, and um, and we came back to Jamaica now to do Reggae Sunsplash, and then you now the whole Stevie Wonder thing started, the whole relationship thing with him, at a personal level, because we had met him before, you know, so. 
this became more on a personal kind of level. And um, and I, you know, I think that was a really great time for us. We had a, we had, we had, a, we were, it was great for us to play with Stevie Wonder and stuff, but as a performance, I don't think it was one of our greatest. I think that we were very tired from coming off of the tour and lots of things were happening and the whole Stevie thing was big at us. But in any case, I think that, um, you know, the show was fantastic for us in terms of that we got a chance to perform with Stevie and Rita Marley. And, you know, sometimes one door, as Bob says, closed, but another one is open. So, you know, I don't think it's anything that we ever regret in terms of that. Why we could have had a better show? We could have, but a big thing, you know. You take the good and the bad, Matthew. You take the good and the bad. So, Kat, you talk about, you know, coming off tour and being tired. Unless you've lived it and done it as you have, you know, people don't really understand what that life is like of, you know, going from city to city, gig to gig, packing, unpacking, on the bus, on the plane, in the car. Talk about life on the road, what you love about it, and what the tougher parts are. Um, the road is always good if you really, I mean, if you really are who you're supposed to be, the road is always good. Road can be hard when you have to get to catch a flight at five in the morning, but don't blame the road for that. Blame the scheduling of airlines for that. And the scheduling right. of hotels that when you reach to them, you can't check in because they don't to check in until three. So blame those people, but don't blame the road. The road's sweet. <laughs> That's great. And where you've been all over the world playing with the band, what are some of your favorite places that you always look forward to going back to? London, I just got back from the UK. I had the most wonderful time. I really did. Brought back so many memories for me. And I had a chance to stay for a week up in Ladbrook Grove, which was really special because that's right up there with Basic Street where we recorded 96 Degrees and Bob was doing Exodus and all that. Brought back some great memories up there for me, you know. And um, of course, Japan, I love that. Great place. And it's not so much a reggae place anymore. It's more a dancehall place, but you know that's cool. Um, and of course, the states, anywhere in the states, California, New York. Wow, how great is that to do a gig in New York? That's a fabulous place to to play a show. So uh, I want to talk about your latest uh, and working with Damien on more work to be done, but. Uh, Kat, uh, you've worked with so many icons. Would you mind if I just asked you about a few uh, of the icons of reggae and just your, you know, what comes to mind? Sure. Uh, I'm a huge fan of, of Gregory Isaac. I thought it would be better Now I'm a branded and stepper talked about a lot more than we think you know because most of the time for me personally 
I would say the majority of jokes that are tour bus, I'd say Gregor Isaacs is at least 30% of the tour bus jokes. And, you know, and knowing him personally was something special. I mean, Gregory was one of the kindest people I ever knew. And not only that, but um, he was just like a really, I mean, he's super creative on the spot type of person. I mean, his wit and the things he came up with on the spot were frightening. And, um, you know, his contribution to the music business is stellar. You know, there's no way anybody can, you know, can bring anything else in. I mean, as relevant as it may be, you can't bring anything else into the fact that Gregory's one of our greats. We love him and we want to stick with that. We don't want to go anywhere else. That's where we want to stick. Great. And we just lost someone, the great Toots Hibbert. No, that's a special boy you're talking about there now, man. That's a serious boy you're talking about. Remember, Toots Hibbert, you know, is, is before Gregory, before, yeah, um, Toots Hibbert is way, way back, you know, way, way back. And, um, and he is, wow, I mean, I was listening to Dog War outside in the garage today, but I should on and look where that, that song must have been, I must have been 10 when that song was playing 10 or 11 or something like that. Outrageous. Mm. Mm. Yeah, man. Amazing. And what about the great duo of Sly Dunbar and Robbie Shakespeare? Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Two of the greatest I ever played with. They're good live. They're, they're exceptional in the studio. I mean, what they, what they don't do live, they triple it up in the studio. They're tremendous. Both of them are my very close friends. Love them dearly. And I've been very fortunate and had the opportunity to work with those brothers. They're top draw, top, top draw. Yeah, they really are. So, Kat, let's talk about Third World Today in 2021. And uh, let's go back just a little bit a couple years ago to More Work To Be Done, which is a great, great record, Grammy nominated, and you mentioned it, but I'd love to talk a little bit about, about working with, I'd love to talk a little bit more about working with Damian Marley. Yeah, I mean, I get you. Um, it's a fascinating story. I mean, Shia's mommy was Donna and Damian's mommy is Cindy. And um, Donna and Cindy were the closest of friends. They had a store together everything going on, going on, and roaming on. And um, from that point of view, Damon practically grew up in my house. And, uh, you know, it's a special relationship. So when he said that he wanted to produce his uncles, which is third world, of course, um, we were fascinated and we were just saying that this is fabulous. And I mean, what will be wrong with that? I mean. You know, it started out with me asking them to do 96 Degrees in the Shade, himself and Steve. And then it went from there and it just proliferated more and more and more. And, um, and it's a great thing because what we did and more work to be done is probably one of the best albums of, for me of all time. And I'm not talking reggae now. That album is up there with Marvin Gaye's album, What's Going On, it's up there big. 
It just don't get the recognition yet. But that album is way, way up there. Way, way up there on the chart. Way up there on the chart. But anyway, Matthew, you don't know how things go in this life, you know. So, you know, you just say, well, all right. You just, but one thing, you must have the courage of your conviction. You must have that. Yes, indeed. So, any plans yet to get back up on the road? Yeah, plans are plans are afoot. Um, we're setting up the rehearsal room right now because we're going to be rehearsing around there as of this week, Saturday. And the 17th, we're going to be in uh, Duluth, Minnesota. Then we're going over to Atlanta the next day. And then we're going to have like a three-day break and then we're going to go up into Rhode Island, Hyenas, up in them places there. You know, and do like five days up there. So we have, a, we have a we have a couple little things doing to keep our just to keep the chops up. You know what I mean? Oh, that's great. All right. Well, I'm going to be in touch, and maybe we'll drive up and see you. That's not too far from me. All right. I'd love that, bro. We'd love to see you, and thank you so much for doing this. It was a joy to talk with you. All right, Bridget. Lots of love. I fought the good fight. I ran a good race, and always kept the Life in the prison is life's greatest present. Give your thanks for one more day. Throughout my journey, I've made some mistakes. Been through stress and strife. I've been broken hearted. I've caused some heartaches. Some say that's just a part of life.